0: so everyone knows 1792 1792 in the red bibles paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god and timothy our brother to the church of god in corinth together with all his holy people throughout acacia grace and peace to you from god our father and the lord jesus christ praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of compassion and the god of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from god for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of christ so also our comfort abounds through christ if we are distressed it is for your comfort um if we are distressed is for you comfort which produces pa- in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer and our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings so also you will share you share in our comfort we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters ...about the trouble we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure... ...so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves... ...but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril... ...and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here with us this morning. My name is Jack if we haven't met. Uh, and particularly if you're new or wel- uh, new or visiting, uh, it's great to have you with us uh, as well. Well, in June 8 of this year, a young woman took to the stage of America's Got Talent. Uh, James, if you could grab her get that, the next slide up there. Her name was Jane. Uh, and she went by the stage name of Nightbird. Uh, black teacher Rip Jean, she strode confidently onto the stage, and what immediately drew your attention to her was the joy that, and the smile that came out of her. Here was someone who was confident, joyful, and seemed to have it all together. They asked her what she was singing, and she said she had an original called It's Okay. They laughed about the title for a bit, it's okay, sure, yeah, life's just okay, life's okay, life's good. Let me give you the dialogue from this point on. One of the judges says this to her, who are you here with? Nightbird says, I'm here by myself. The judge says, "Well, well, that's okay, I suppose. What do you do for a living? She says, well, I haven't been working for quite a few years. I've been dealing with cancer. The judge is taken aback. Oh, I'm sorry. Then Simon Cowell, the famously taciturn judge, says, can I ask you a question? How are you now? She says, well, last time I checked, I had some cancer in my lungs, my spine, and my liver. There's silence. And then the judge says, so you're not okay? Well, not in every way. The judge says, well, you've got a beautiful smile and a beautiful glow and nobody would know. Nightbird says, well, it's important to know that I'm so much more than the bad things that happened to me. They let her go. She gets up. She sings her song. She nails the song. It's incredible. Go watch it afterwards. Nightbird, America's Got Talent. And when she finishes, the whole crowd stands up and erupts. They say lovely things about her, but then it gets to Simon Cowell. He's the last one to speak. And he's clearly upset and moved by what has just happened. And he says, that was stunning. There was something about the authenticity, something about that song, after you just casually told us what you are going through. And you know, and then Nightbird says, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy. And that comment leaves Simon Cowell stunned. In fact, it leaves everybody stunned. Because how can you have so much joy and comfort when there is so much wrong going on in your life? How can you have that perspective? In fact, when you dig a little bit deeper into Nightbird's story, she's really only telling half of the story. At that point, she had about a 2% chance of survival. She'd beaten the cancer once for it only to reappear. And to make things worse, the second time it appeared, her husband of five years left her. That's why she was there alone. How do you deal with that kind of suffering? How do you deal with that kind of pressure in your life? And the reason that it was such compelling viewing was because she was clearly happy. She had a joy in her that appeared genuine, that couldn't be dispressed, couldn't be suppressed, despite what was going on. There was such a dissonance, and that's what left people stunned. Because the pressure that she was under, the pressure cooker that she had experienced was such that she could have easily written the words that were in 2 Corinthians that Crystal read out for us earlier. Paul writes these words, he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. I wonder if you know what that feels like, I wonder if you resonate with those words, or that feeling of being so overwhelmed by the circumstances, of not knowing where or how to turn. That's certainly Nightbird's experience, and yet she was able to retain so much hope and comfort. What is the secret that allows someone like Nightbird to retain that hope in her life? What is the secret that the Apostle Paul has, who could speak of this suffering, of this burden, but at the same time speak of a God of compassion and comfort? How does comfort come out of suffering? Well, brothers and sisters, these are the ideas that our passage this morning touches on. They're big ideas, so let me pray and then we will get stuck into the passage. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, Father, that your word deals with issues like these, the big problems in life. And we thank you that it gives real and good solutions. We thank you, Father, that in your son Jesus, you have brought comfort out of suffering. You have brought death out of, life out of death. You have brought good out of evil. This morning, I pray that you would be speaking to each and every one of us, wherever we're at, whatever burdens we're facing, whatever struggles we're facing that you would bring comfort and that you would bring compassion to our hearts. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as Henry said, we are beginning a new series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, I'm not sure if you have spent much time in it, but it's a brilliant book that applies the message of the cross to the messiness and suffering in this world. There should be a picture up there, James. That one, yeah, we're good to go from here. Um, It's a brilliant book that applies the message of the cross to the brokenness and messiness of this world. The Corinthian church is far from a perfect church. Uh, In fact, it's really a problem church uh, for Paul. Uh, It's caused much angst and pain for him. There's significant division. There's some pretty horrible sexual immorality. Uh, But perhaps uh, the most problematic element is that there has arisen in this church false apostles, false teachers called super apostles, who are preaching a false gospel. And that false gospel, according to one commentator, is a theology that, quote, measures God's saving work in Christ by outward marks of success. A theology that measures God's saving work by outward marks of success. That is, if you follow Jesus, everything is going to work out well for you. In fact, the greater your success, the greater your faith must be. And so, the whole way through 2 Corinthians in particular, Paul is pushing back against this idea that we can measure our spiritual success based on outward cultural signs of fruit. That success for the Christian will look like success in the world. And that's important for us to remember this morning because in our passage, Paul rejects this idea and shows that the Christian message is exactly the opposite. In fact, Paul here lays the groundwork for the entire book, uh, and in a sense gives you the little theological key to understand everything else that is going to come. And so, what we're going to do this morning is I'll get you to open your Bibles, uh, if you have them, because this is one of those passages that we're going to have to do some pretty significant work in it in order to receive the benefits, because hands up, uh, if you reckon that you understood verses three to seven when they were read out earlier, that's what I thought, though particularly those, they're quite confusing the first time you read them through, Uh, and yet particularly in those verses, three to seven, contains the secret to unlocking what Paul is talking about. And the secret to 2 Corinthians, in a sense, the the secret to living the Christian life. Uh, It's a little bit as though Paul does the theory in 3 to 7, and then he applies the passage to himself in 8 to 11. So there's going to be a little bit of heavy lifting in the theory section, fair warning, but stick with me, and it's okay, because I've got diagrams (laughs) to try and make it clear. And I even stole 15 minutes of our new assistant minister's time to make them look pretty for me. Um, so the particular issue that we're having a look at here uh, in 2 Corinthians 1 to 11 is this relationship between comfort uh, and suffering. And so pick it up with me in verse 3. Paul begins his argument uh, with the character of God. Uh, read with me. If you don't have a Bible open, I've got the verses up on the slides. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort. Let's just pause here for a moment and just stop and realize how beautiful that that description of God the Father is. The Father is not some distant judging Father, like so many earthly fathers are. Our Father is the Father of compassion. He is the God of all comfort. That is His heart. That is who He is. And so that's where Paul begins when he begins this discussion about suffering. And so what does our Father do? Well, verse 4. Our Father is the one who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. The us here is Paul and Timothy. And so this bit kind of makes sense. Here's the first diagram. Uh, we have God. God gives comfort to Paul and Timothy. Then Paul and Timothy are able to pass that comfort on Uh, to e.g. the Corinthian church. Let's call this principle number one. There's three principles I've got. The comfort that God gives can be passed on. So that's verse four. It then gets a little bit confusing in verse five. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Here Paul introduces the concept of suffering, but he does something strange with it. He seems to suggest that suffering and comfort are related. As we share in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comforts abound. If you get suffering, you will receive comfort. If you want the comfort, you will need to endure the suffering. Now, that's pretty odd to us, because it's easy to think that if we follow Jesus then our lives will automatically be better. That's why suffering can so often feel like a black swan event to us. We're just following Jesus. That's our risk management strategy. But then this suffering enters and our faith is shaken. You can see here the echo of what those super apostles were arguing back in Corinth. But Paul is saying if you follow the way of the cross, if you follow Jesus, then you will enter into a life of suffering. It's actually part and parcel of living in a broken, suffering world. But for the Christian, it's actually part and parcel beyond that of picking up your cross and following Jesus. As the world hated Jesus, so you too will be hated. And yet, in entering into the cross you will claim the most indescribable comfort and benefits possible. But we're still kind of left with a question here. How does entering into suffering lead to comfort? Well, here's my next diagram. How does this work? Well, this is what's going on, I think. As our suffering increases, think of that as an x-axis, so also our comfort increases. Think of that as the y-axis. Make sense? Not really? That's okay. I've got two analogous examples. Two ways because I think actually we know how this works. Example number one is fitness. When you exercise you endure pain and suffering. As you exercise that pain as you exercise that pain and suffering increases and so also your fitness and your health increases. As your aerobic capacity is put under strain, so your aerobic capacity increases. As your muscles are literally broken down, so also they ultimately repair and become stronger. You can't get fit unless suffering and pain is involved. Example number two is your immune system. When Rosie was one years old, uh, we had her tested for allergies and it turns out that she was really um, allergic to peanuts. Her body reacted and flared up to it. And what was the instruction from the doctor? Feed her lots more peanuts. Make sure she eats peanuts every single day. Why? Because her body, in experiencing a certain discomfort and suffering, was actually building an immunity and a tolerance to the peanuts. And so that, I think, is what verse 5 is saying. Suffering and comfort are not separate ideas. Comfort is not necessarily... The absence of suffering. Now, Paul is saying something quite radical. Comfort comes through suffering. And it is by suffering that our comfort increases. Let's call this principle number two. As our suffering increases, so also our comfort increases. Okay, everyone sticking with me? Keeping in there? It's really just verse six that we need to figure out now. And it's okay because I've got another diagram. But let's have a look at verse 6 here. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Now look at that verse with me there. So the first two lines there actually kind of make sense of what we've already seen. Remember our first two principles? The comfort that God gives can be passed on. And number two, as our suffering increases, so also our comfort increases. So the first two lines, as Paul is distressed, so his comfort increases, and he's able to pass that on to the Corinthians. That kind of makes sense. But then we get to this third line. This comfort creates the endurance in order to be able to suffer. Well, what's happening here? Well, here's the diagram for this one. You can see there, as your comfort increases, so also your capacity to endure suffering increases. Call this principle number three. As your comfort increases, so also your capacity to endure suffering increases. It's really just the reverse of number two. Think about that exercise and immune system examples. As your fitness increases so also is your capacity for your body to endure pain and exercise. As your immune system becomes larger, so also is your capacity to face threats and attacks on your body. And so it is with suffering and comfort. As your comfort in the benefits of the cross increase, so also your capacity to endure suffering increases. Okay, so if your eyes have glazed over, switch back on now for the summary. Verses 3 to 6 give us these three principles. Principle number one, the comfort that God gives can be passed on. Number two, as our suffering increases, so our comfort increases. And number three, as our comfort increases, so also our capacity to endure suffering increases. And it's these principles that allow Paul to say something quite extraordinary in verse 7. Look with me there in verse 7. He says, And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. That's an amazing statement of hope. As Paul watches the Corinthians suffer, he has hope and confidence because he knows that they're going to share in the comfort. But if you're still being a little bit confused at this point, that's totally fine because we haven't actually fully figured out how this works yet. It's a nice thought, but how is it actually true? And I think the reason we're still struggling at this point is because Paul is actually assuming something that he's laid the groundwork for in 1 Corinthians. And I think the message of 1 Corinthians can be summed up in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The theology of 1 Corinthians is this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, these principles by themselves don't actually make a lot of sense actually, they're kind of foolishness to the world. You can't get comfort out of suffering. In fact, we've built entire ethical systems based on trying to maximise comfort and minimise suffering. This is foolishness to the world. But it is only when you see these principles through the eyes of the cross that it can begin to make sense. Because the cross... Is a paradox because at the cross it was at the moment of ultimate evil where humanity murdered the innocent Son of God that the greatest good was achieved the destruction of sin death and the devil it was at the moment of ultimate death where the Son of God died that life was won forever when he was raised from the dead and it was at the moment of ultimate suffering that comfort was gained for us Because it was at the cross where the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort gave over His only beloved Son to endure the sufferings of the cross on our behalf, so that we would not have to suffer them. But more than that, He suffered so that we could gain the ultimate comfort of life, of freedom, of restoration, of peace, of joy, of redemption, of union with God, our Maker, and life with Him in eternity. There is and cannot be a greater comfort than this. And so as we follow Jesus, we follow this pattern. We follow the way of the cross. We enter into the sufferings of the cross. But in doing so, we come to know and love and appreciate the comforts and the benefits that flow from the cross. And that only ever increases until Jesus returns or calls us home. So that's the abstract theory. What does that end actually look like in practice? Well, that's where Paul takes it in verses eight to eleven. He takes these principles and this idea and applies it to himself. And this is where we see that theory, all the hard work we've just done, become concrete. And we get a little window into how this works for the Apostle Paul. Read with me there from verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. These are pretty incredible words, right? Who here has ever felt like this? These are words that resonate incredibly, I think, with life. Who here is sitting under great pressure, far beyond your ability to endure such that you despair of life itself? Some of us are. Some of us can look back at times when this is true. And some of us sitting here will experienced it if we have not experienced it in full yet but all of us will experience this in one way or another but then Paul is able to say this these words of gospel but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. Paul says that all the suffering that he is enduring, pressure far beyond his ability to endure such that he despairs of life itself, all of this happened so that he might not rely on himself but on God who raises the dead. You see, the pressure coming on Paul drove him to despair of life, but all it did was drive him back onto the cross and to realize that death had been defeated and there was nothing to fear of death itself. It's an incredible loop here. If you are feeling overwhelmed by life, by work, by family, if you are feeling broken, then look back to the cross And realize that there, Jesus has accomplished everything for you. If you feel that your love has run out or that you are in some way unlovable, then look back at the cross and see the love that has been poured out for you in streams that never end. And as you suffer, be pushed back onto the cross. Look at the cross and see the Son of God who suffered in your place. See the Father, the God of all comfort, who sent his one and only beloved Son to die for you. And see the Spirit, the Comforter, is one of his other names, that has been given to you and that lives inside of you now. The same Spirit that, Jesus, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you now. And if this is true, then there is nothing in your life that can't be overcome. And look at the cross. And see the peace that is won for you. That we experience in part now, but will soon experience in full when Jesus returns or calls you home. And then, after looking at the cross, we pray. Verse 11. We pray to pass this comfort on. We pray because we have set our hope on Jesus to continue to deliver us. And we give thanks and praise for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And so this is how Christians can still have comfort amongst suffering. Because firstly, it allows us to call evil evil, to understand suffering, to be broken by that suffering. But secondly, in breaking us, it only ever pushes us back to the very source of our hope. The only thing that can save us and actually bring us true and lasting comfort, the cross. Our broken saviour dying for a broken and suffering people to bring them comfort and healing. Well, I want to finish this morning by showing us that this is not a new idea. In fact, it's all the way through our faith from the very beginnings of the Bible right up until the 21st century. And it stands at the very center actually of what we believe, this paradox, this idea. And so three moments. The first is all the way back in Genesis. Joseph is speaking to his brothers who had caused him great evil by selling him into slavery. But in doing that, God had created good out of that, had brought good out of that. And Joseph reflects theologically on how God had used that evil for good. And his comment here gloriously foreshadows the cross, but also what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive As they are today. That was Genesis, we've seen the cross, we've seen Paul now jump forward to the Reformation and this idea actually sits at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Luther famously nails his 95 Theses on the Wall, but that's kind of a, a political and a sociological argument. Luther's first properly theological defense of the Reformation was in what's called the Heidelberg Disputation. And he gave that in 1522. And here he says the heart of what Christians believe. And this, these words are from uh, the climax of his argument. He says this, Proposition 18, It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. You have to be broken before you can accept what Jesus offers. Proposition 20, he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. When we become Christians, the cross turns things upside down such that we can look at the sufferings of this world and know that God is bringing comfort through us. That we can look at the evil in this world and know that God is reaching in and turning it to good. That's what drove Luther and that's what his great theological breakthrough was. And this idea is still with us today because I said that when you dig a little bit deeper into Nightbird's story that we started with, what we find is actually a reliance on God. On a blog, she reflects on how suffering and comfort can go together and how this God of comfort stands at the heart of it all. And we're going to finish with these words from Nightbird. I haven't come as far as I'd like in understanding the things that have happened this year. But here's one thing I do know. When it comes to pain... God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean God is far Let me pray as we think about this God who has come near to us. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you that you are the Father of all comfort, the God of all compassion. We thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus. Your Son, Jesus, who on the cross was able to turn evil into good, was able to turn death into life, was able to turn our sufferings into comfort and joy and hope. And Father, I pray that this would be a message that we are able to know deep in our hearts as the Apostle Paul knew in his heart, that this would be a truth that enables us to endure even though the suffering of this world might overwhelm us, that we would always be pushed back onto the cross, that we would always be pushed back to see just where our comfort comes from. Your Son, Jesus, who died for us, And Father, I pray particularly for all those here this morning who particularly need to hear this, and that this would bring comfort uh, to our hearts, uh, that we would know the love that you have for us. And so, Father, we pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen.